All right, guys, <clears throat> it is officially 6.30. So I'm gonna pull you back together if that's okay. Sorry, I can't let you talk all morning. Love to. So what did we decide? Are we casting lots or not? Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> I like that idea. All right, guys, let me, uh, let me pull us back together and guide us through what we saw here. Um, I'm, I'm hoping you all got to the question about casting lots. I'm sure that was one uh, that, that came to your eyes as you were studying it. We'll, we'll end there, but I don't want to start there. But um, let me pray for our time, and then we'll dive in, take a look at what's going on here in chapter 1 of Acts. Uh, Heavenly Father, we love you, and uh, we are grateful to be here this morning as your church, as uh, men of Emmaus Church, Father, who are gathering to, to, to study your scriptures, to pray together, to be the church, just like um, these men and women gathered 2,000 years ago in that upper room uh, as you directed them, Father. We are in every way connected with these brothers and sisters. Um, you entrusted the gospel, you entrusted the spirit, you entrusted the church to their hands as the early church, Father, but we are still that same church, and you are still that same God. And I pray that as we step into this study of Acts, Father, we would not look at these stories and these narratives, these histories as fiction, as fantasy, as fairy tale, but remember that these are our heritage. This is, this is family talk. This is family history. And uh, the same spirit that you gave to them is the same spirit you've given to us. And the same calling you've given to them is the same calling you've given to us. And the same priorities they developed are the same priorities we have today. So, Father, would the continuity of your church through time be pressed deeply upon our hearts as we study this book? And in the ways you want to, Father, would you convict us of the ways that we've departed from the way you originally designed things? And uh, I pray that all those good things would take place this morning as we look at your scriptures and, and dive into uh, this specific passages, uh, these passages here in chapter one. So God, our time, we look to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, so I want to start with just a, a quick narrative overview. We'll try to do this every week. Whenever you're studying history, uh, following the plot is incredibly important. And so uh, I'll, I'll start there. Chapter one of Acts covers the first 50 days of history of the early church. So it's covering the period from the resurrection of Jesus, which happened, remember, around Passover. He was crucified on Passover, resurrected uh, the Sunday following. And then uh, this leads up to Pentecost, which is where chapter 2 begins, the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit will fall upon the church. Those two events are 50 days apart. Uh, that's why it's called Pentecost. It's the Feast of Weeks. There's seven weeks of, uh, of time that are celebrated there, and uh, it leads up to Pentecost. These are celebrations that have been celebrated by the church through time. They get whole new meanings in Christ. So Passover got a whole new meaning with the crucifixion. Uh, Pentecost is going to get a whole new meaning in chapter 2 as we study next week. Uh, but there's 50 days playing out here, and we're catching Luke giving us an overview of what happened in those early days. And what do we see? First, the first 40 days are spent with Jesus. He did not go straight back to heaven after he resurrected. He spent time with his disciples. Verse 3 tells us he presented himself alive to the disciples, which is you know, a pretty significant thing. Uh, a man who was crucified, and, and by many proofs he appeared to them. Uh, and it says as he was doing so, he was speaking about the kingdom of God. So he spent these 40 days uh, teaching them, explaining how the kingdom works. We catch a glimpse of this in Luke 24. 
uh, with some of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, where he explained, he went through the whole Old Testament and showed how all the scriptures pointed to Jesus. So this was an incredibly important time in uh, the history of the church as Jesus himself explained who he was, uh, gave them some instructions, gave them some commands. They got to spend it with Jesus. Now, uh, what we know from this time, both from here and the gospel accounts is that it wasn't consecutive. He wasn't with them the entirety of the 40 days. He wasn't necessarily you know, staying in the same lodgings with them and eating every meal. He would like appear and then disappear. He was like in and out. And it's very interesting if you catch all the uh, gospel accounts. Luke's gospel actually shows this the most. If you want to go study it, John, you catch a little bit as well. But, uh, but regardless, during that time, he was with them. Uh, and we don't catch like... Uh, all of the teachings he gave, uh, I really wish that we had more history of what he did teach them. Um, but he does give them this very important passage in, in uh, verses 6 through 8 about the nature of the kingdom, about the mission, about the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then he departs to heaven. You catch the ascension there in verse, uh, verses 11 and 12 where he leaves for the final time from the earth, and the angels tell the disciples he'll return this way. So significant moments there. Then in the last 10 days of this you know, 50-day period, we see, uh, this is verses 12 through 26, we see the early church in action. So they begin to gather together, they begin to pray, um, they appoint a replacement for Judas, uh, who ends up being you know, this, this man, Matthias, who becomes the 12th apostle. Um, so with that, let me also give you an overview of our themes. Remember last week I, I pointed you to five major themes that you should be tracking as we study the, books of, uh, the book of Acts. Um, and I want to show you, four of them have major development here. So first, the Holy Spirit. A lot of important references here. As you saw, you get the promise of the Holy Spirit as a gift in verse 5. They'll be baptized by the Holy Spirit is the language that, that Jesus, is use, Jesus uses. <coughs> uh, then he explains the role of the Holy Spirit in verse 8. He, he will come to give them power for witnessing about Jesus. You know, the Holy Spirit's role is to uh, empower the church for proclamation of the gospel. That's clearly articulated by Jesus. And then um, you catch a glimpse too. This is significant, y'all. Look at verse 16. If you've got your Bibles open, uh, you see this reference that Peter makes to the Holy Spirit speaking beforehand through the mouth of David. Don't miss that sentence. That is verbal plenary inspiration. This is why we say with confidence the Bible was written by God Himself, by the Holy Spirit. This is not newly developed through the last 2,000 years. This is not a new doctrine of the church. The first apostles, Peter himself, looked at the Old Testament and said, David didn't write that. The Holy Spirit wrote that through David. And the Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David. So this concept of the Holy Spirit being the ultimate author of Scripture, God Himself inspiring Scripture, has been a doctrine held by the church through time. You're going to see that appear more in the book of Acts, but I just wanted to point that out. It's a significant part of the Holy Spirit's work. Um, witnessing, the, the second theme that we see development here, uh, this is their role. Verse 8, their job is to be witnesses. Keep tracking that. And, and especially track the connection between the Holy Spirit pouring out power and they're witnessing. This is a, a yin and a yang, an interlocking chain that appears probably 15 times in the book of Acts. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He empowers witnessing. Uh, you also see development with uh, our theme of the church. Uh, you see them developing some priorities here, uh, devoting themselves to obeying Jesus, to prayer, to gathering together. Uh, they appoint a new leader here in, uh, in chapter 1. So some, some things playing out with the church. And then the fourth theme I see is sort of the Great Commission, the gospel going forth to the nations. Uh, you see that there in verse 8 when Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses not just in Jerusalem, but 
in Samaria, Judea, and to the ends of the, wor- uh, the world. The, the gospel will clearly go global. Outside of Israel, the Great Commission is going to go forth. So, all that being said, let me focus in on what I see as three big things playing out here that I want you to uh, make sure you're not missing. Uh, this is our, our, our teaching content for this morning. I, I have some fill-in-the-blanks on the back of your sheet if you'd like to uh, do that. Um, so, three things I want to focus in on Jesus in on as Jesus establishes and releases his church here in Acts chapter 1. Number one, the church is given a mission. Church is given a mission. So again, 40 days spent with Jesus post-resurrection, and we're not told anything really about what he said. Like I, I wish there was a whole nother book of history in the New Testament that some of the apostles had put together, put down in writing and saved for us with all the teachings of Jesus during these 40 days. Because that... I mean, I just can't, I'm astounded by what he must have said. By, we get some glimpses of big overview stuff, but there's no quotations really, with the exception of verses 6 through 8. Luke only, in all these things, he, he interviewed these people. He could have included some of this as a historian for us to know. What did Jesus say after the resurrection? Uh, what, is, what, what things was he teaching the church? But he only gives us one, and, and it's the most important one, when Jesus gives his church a mission. Uh, and I just want to read this for you. There's some important things playing out here. The disciples are clearly confused about what their mission is, and then Jesus clarifies and gives them some, some uh, clear directions to go forward. Verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Okay, this is, a, this is what shows their confusion about what he was up to. The disciples were confused about who he was, what the role of the Messiah was. They believed he was the Messiah, but the general expectation of what the Messiah would be at that time was different than what we understand him to be now. They were confused about who he was. They thought he was going to be a political leader. He, they thought he was going to be a, uh, a political leader who would come to establish a national kingdom. So uh, we know this because they're saying the word restore. Will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Uh, all the uh, glimpses of pro- prophetic uh, voices that we have in the Old Testament pointing to the Messiah reference this connection to King David. Again and again, you know, Jesus, uh, God promises through the prophets uh, there will be a son from the line of David whose kingdom will never end. You know, so you, they knew a king was coming. They knew a Messiah. An anointed one was one day going to show up. But they thought he would be like David. And the days of David were the best days in Israel's history. He was the strongest king. He established peace for Israel. He expanded their boundaries, defeated their enemies. Under King David, Israel was in some ways the most dominant superpower of that part of the world uh, that existed. There was no threat. They were the best nation on the planet. And so in the mind of the Israelites, what they thought the Messiah was going to be was a political hero. Now past that moment, uh, they're now being ruled by other people. In, in, this, in this exact moment, they're being ruled by the Romans. They don't have their own ability to make laws. They don't have their own ability to, you know, they're being taxed and, and uh, ruled in these ways that they don't desire. They'd like to rule themselves. So they want this Messiah to restore the kingdom to Israel. That's their question. Jesus, you've died, you've resurrected. Now is it time? You know, they thought he was going to lead a revolution and they'd get to be his sidekicks. They thought he would make Israel great again. That was the, the concept uh, that was in their minds. I, I mean, it's helpful. It's, it really is helpful for you to conceptualize. That's, I think, a very valid connection with what was in their minds. They wanted restoration of Israel. They wanted Israel to be great. They thought the Messiah would do that. 
And Jesus clarifies. Look what he says. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. He basically says, you know, in other words, that's the wrong question. That's not what I'm up to right now. I'm not saying I won't be up to that eventually, but, but I'm not, that's not what I'm up to right now. Instead, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. He gives them a clarification of mission that's incredibly important for us to see. They're not to be building a kingdom on this earth. They're to be building a different kind of kingdom. So three quick clarifications, three little sub points on this one. Number one, Jesus is building a spiritual kingdom. This is what he's teaching them. He's not building a political kingdom. It's not a national kingdom. It's not visible with the eyes in this material realm. It's a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom of souls, a kingdom of conversions, Uh, He's up to something. He's giving out power for kingdom work. That's very clear here. He's about to give them the gift of the Holy Spirit to do this work. Uh, But the work is a spiritual work. He intends to build a spiritual kingdom. He's up to saving people, redeeming people, bringing them into his kingdom, building the church. That's what he's up to. He's not about building a nation. Second clarification, Jesus builds his kingdom through the testimony of his church through the witnessing of his church. The kingdom will be established as people who have seen him tell about him to people who have not. So just see what's playing out there in verse 8. He intends for the witnesses of Jesus to tell the people who were not witnesses about who he was. And they're going to do this in Jerusalem all the way to the ends of the earth. But their job, the way the kingdom will be built, is through testimony, through witnessing. Uh, Again, this is why this is one of the the big themes in this book, uh, I think Acts 1.8 actually is sort of the thesis statement, if you think back to literature in high school, of the entire book. You're going to see this witnessing play out through the, uh, the course of this story uh, from, from here forward. Um, this is the main job of the apostles, to testify and to witness. And it's the same main job for us today. This is Jesus defining the mission of the church. It's the same as the Great Commission, the same concept, same heartbeat, different words. Uh, but this is the mission that God gave to the apostles. It became the mission of the church. It is still our mission as Emmaus Church and each of you individually as followers of Christ today. Third clarification he gives is Jesus is building a global kingdom. It's a global kingdom. It's not just restricted to Israel. The kingdom will start there in Israel. He came to the Jews first. But it's going to spill forth like an overflowing well bubbling up. It's going to spill out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. These are the the other parts of Israel. Israel divided into two kingdoms. You kind of have that. He's basically saying it's going to start here in the city. It's going to spill out into all of Israel. And then the shocking part, he says, to the ends of the earth. It's the same concept as Matthew 28. The church is to go forth and make disciples of all peoples, which would have been a huge, important clarification for the Israelites at this time. Uh, They didn't like the Romans. They didn't like being ruled by Rome. The thought of God doing a work among the Romans would be very frustrating to them. They wouldn't want that. In fact, they didn't associate with really any Gentiles. It was kind of, uh, it made you unpure to associate with Gentiles of any kind. So the thought that God was doing things outside of Israel would have been very, um, I, don't even, I can't even think of the word, it's too early, but... Um, uh, Traumatic, very uh, stunning to them, shocking to them. In, in some ways, they, they sort of struggled with a little bit of racism in their hearts. They, they wouldn't have uh, assumed. Even, you're going to see this in Acts chapter 10 when the gospel first spills over into the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit has to do all this stuff to convince Peter he's actually allowed to share the gospel with Cornelius. 
He's, there has to be a dream and, and visions and all these Holy Spirit clear demonstrations in order to help the church indeed carry the gospel forth to the Gentiles. So this is a big clarification. Again, it's a major theme of the book. Jesus is building a global kingdom. Um, and in a real sense, this is exactly what you're going to see happen in the book of Acts. Acts 1.8 becomes like a, an outline, really, for what plays out going forward. So chapters 1 through 7, you're going to see it playing out in Jerusalem. They're going to witness in the city. That's the focus of the first seven chapters. Then in chapters 8 through 12, you're going to see it spill into Judea and Samaria. It's going to spill into the rest of Israel, out of the city. And then in chapters 13 through 28, that'll be what we study in the spring. The gospel spills out of those areas into the whole world. You begin to see missionaries go forth. And uh, here within the first generation of the church, uh, it's a profound uh, uh, global change that plays out. Um, I have some maps if you can see these, I know the screen is a little bit small, but I want you to see it. Uh, this is a, a map of the known world, the Roman Empire at this time. Um, this map specifically goes up to 45 AD. What's gray are the areas that are known to be controlled by the Roman Empire. So most significant, most powerful empire on the planet up to then. And it's controlled there in Rome in the middle, in Italy, the boot. And... Uh, and you can see their, their reach expanded all the way into Israel, all the way around the Mediterranean Sea pretty significantly. Now, where you see yellow, and admittedly you don't see very much, is where the gospel has gone by 45 AD. So this is just about you know, 10, 12 years after Jesus uh, uh, departed. So in the first 10 or 12 years of the church, you can't really see it, but it's all here in Israel. There's a little bit in Antioch and a little bit in Rome. So the gospel's gone forth a little bit, but not too much. But this is how it started in the first 10 years. This takes us to 65, so another 20 years. You can see it bubbling forth uh, into the Roman Empire. It starts to spread in a few different places. They'd go to cities. They'd plant the gospel. They'd establish a church. They'd move on. There was no like you know, ongoing presence in a lot of these cities. They would just see converts and then let those converts take on the task of witnessing. So again, 65 AD. This is the last one. This is 325 AD. So you're fast-forwarding 200 years, but what I want you to see is that this small group of 120 people that are present here in Acts chapter 1, through the faithful, doing exactly what Jesus said, just witnessing the gospel in about 300 years, went forth to, to completely overtake the Roman Empire. In fact, uh, Constantine was the uh, emperor who, it became politically advantageous. People say he was converted. He has this conversion testimony where he became a Christian. Up to his rule, Christians were persecuted in the Roman Empire. Um, there's a lot of doubt whether he was actually converted or whether he was just a smart politician. Um, but he did. He was the first Roman Empire who sort of made Christianity the uh, mandated religion in the Roman Empire because so many people were already Christians. It had become the majority uh, rule at that point. So you see dramatic um, growth through all of that. This is the first thing we see playing out here. The church taking the mission of Jesus that he's clarified to them very seriously and living it out. Um, I was reading some commentaries about how this happened. This explosive growth of the early church has been studied by a lot of people because we all want to experience this today, right? Like we're living in a, in a nation where we're seeing sort of the opposite play out. If you study trend lines and the impact of Christianity in America over the last 60 years, you will see a, almost a complete reversal of these maps, a, a decline of Christianity, a marginalization of 
religion in the heart of the American people, a secularization of our culture. And I think it alarms all of us. We, we're seeing it playing out in, in culture, in cultural values. It can be scary in a lot of different ways. Um, and so there's a, there's a big desire for Christians to tap into this power, to tap into this and figure out what happened. But I loved this quote. This is a German historian who studied the early church really well. He said it this way. How did it, how did it happen in the early church? He said, we cannot hesitate to believe that the great mission of Christianity was in reality accomplished by means of informal missionaries. What he's saying there is, yes, Paul was important, and yes, Peter was important, and yes, the 12 apostles were important, but what caused this was not the fact that they had good leadership. What caused this was the fact that they had informal membership who actually took the mission of God seriously. Every Christian viewed their role as a witness to Jesus. Every Christian was testifying to Jesus and the people around them. And people were being converted in mass because the church in mass was testifying to Christ. So all that to be said, when Jesus gave this mission, he gave it to us as well. You know, this, is, this is the priority of our lives. Uh, as men, we're, we're men who have to navigate priorities, right? We have a lot to juggle. We have careers. We have families. Um, there's a lot of things, a lot of uh, you know, plates that you're trying to spin at the same time. But this is one plate, family, that you can't miss out on. Jesus has given you a priority for your existence, and it's to testify about him to those who don't know him, to be a minister of reconciliation, to let the gospel go forth. And that might overwhelm you. It might terrify you. Maybe you're introverted and you don't like speaking to people and the thought of uh, bringing up Jesus in the office sounds nothing but terrifying. Well, good news. God gives the Holy Spirit who will empower you for this work. He doesn't leave you alone in this. He, he gives power. Dunamis is the, the Greek word there. It's the same word uh, from which we have our word today, dynamite. The Holy Spirit works this incredible strength in us to make us these powerful witnesses. So Jesus gives his church a mission. That's what I want you to see there. Um, I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit here. Uh, Second point, the church establishes priorities. The church establishes priorities. Jesus leaves. There's this mic drop moment there in verse 12 as he suddenly ascends to to heaven and he's given them this commission. He's given them this uh, important mission for their lives, but then he disappears. And for the first moments, they just stand there staring like they're like, are you going to come back? You kind of appeared and disappeared. Like, is this different than the last times? Finally, the angels show up and tell him, okay, it's, he's not coming back. Like, it's time to go. Uh, what, what are you doing? Uh, he, he will come back one day just like this. And that's important, family. The, the, we believe in the imminent return of Christ. We've been waiting on edge for 2,000 years. And it might be 2,000 more years. It might be today. We believe in the imminent. It could happen at any moment. Jesus is coming for his church. He will bring time to a close. That's clearly articulated there in this passage. But the church, uh, they're they're sitting there staring, and then uh, finally they they jump in as the angels send them off. Uh, And they're ordinary men just like us, so I'm sure their temptation was to do just what we would do, right? Make a plan, work the plan. We're supposed to start in Jerusalem. There's 11 of us. Let's divide it up into 11 parts. Let's get to work, right? This is, this is what I would have done. This is probably what you would have done. Men of action, this is how we approach things. But they don't. They don't do it this way. Remember, Jesus told them they're supposed to wait. They're not supposed to get to work immediately. They're supposed to wait for this gift. Basically telling them, you're going to need my power if you're going to accomplish my mission. So stop running off and doing stuff. You need to sit still and wait. He was teaching them an important principle there. But what do they do with their waiting time? That's what I want you to pay attention to. In this waiting time, they establish some priorities for who they'll be as a people. And I see two that I want to focus on. Number one, prayer. Verse 15 says they devoted themselves to prayer. 
right from the start, the first thing they began to do was to pray, to seek God's help to establish His kingdom. Jesus is gone. You said it's better that you go away because you're going to give us something better. This doesn't feel better. We feel scared. You've told us to evangelize the whole world. How are we going to do this? They do the one thing that all of us should always be doing, which is pray, seeking God's power, seeking His face. It's, it, prayer is the place where we as mortal people interact with the immortal world, where we as finite creatures tap into infinite power and strength. You know, Jesus taught a lot about prayer in the Gospels. These disciples had been discipled in prayer. And the main thing, if you put all of Jesus' teachings together about what He said about prayer, the main thing is pray. Your Father loves you. He's a good Father. He knows how to give good gifts to His children. Even if you, you know, a persistent widow parable. Even if you don't get an answer right away, keep praying. You know, he, Jesus taught His disciples to be men of prayer and they uh, implemented this teaching right there from the start as a high priority for the church by being a church devoted to prayer. Second thing I see, second uh, emphasis priority here at the start was studying the Word. And this one is not explicit. There's not a verse that says they studied the Scriptures. But I do see it implicitly in this passage, primarily because of what happens in verse 20. When uh, Peter, as he's starting to appoint a new leader, uh, he starts quoting Scripture. And these are kind of random Scriptures. Psalm 69, Psalm 109, just out of the blue, out of his mouth, he, is, he has these things memorized. It's very clear he's been studying the Word. And it's very clear by the way the other disciples follow him that they also were studying the Word. The Word had a prominent place in their, in their minds right here from the start. And you see this continue. In chapter 2, uh, two different, actually three different times, he's going to spontaneously quote Old Testament Scripture. In chapter 3, uh, it happens again twice. In chapter 4, it happens again once. So Peter is just a man of the Word. He, he, he knows the Scriptures. He's clearly studied the Scriptures. And right here from the start, uh, the Scriptures are taking a priority in, uh, in the early church. So prayer and the Scriptures immediately becoming priorities for them, the, uh, the two big things I see. And, and honestly, these will stay that way. When they established it this way, this continues. In chapter 6, we're going to see um, the appointment of deacons. And the whole reason deacons were appointed, there was you know, widows. There were people who were hungry and starving and the church wasn't caring for them very well. It's an important thing that the church is called to do. Uh, this, this should have been a priority for the early apostles, the early pastors. But they say it's not good that we focus on that and neglect prayer and the ministry of the Word. These two priorities have to have priority for the church. And we can figure out a way to do all three. We don't have to neglect anything. But we as leaders must protect the two biggest things, prayer and ministry of the Word. So those priorities should still be true for us today. I think the priorities um, should exist in our church, but also in each of our individual lives. So men, what role does prayer have in your life? I mean, I mean truly, does, does prayer have any substantial place in your life? Um, what role, I think this is an important question for us to consider as, as the men of Emmaus, what role does prayer have in the life of our church? That's a challenging question for me as a, as a pastor to answer. Um, prayer is not auxiliary, it's not ancillary, it's not out here on the fringes of who we are as the people of God. It is central. Jesus taught us this, the early church demonstrated this. Let the conviction of that do its rightful thing in our hearts as we see that here in chapter 1. Towards that end, we are having a men's prayer breakfast on October 22nd, 8 a.m., Saturday morning. Uh, you're welcome to join us for that. Hey, if you are coming, please RSVP because we are trying to prepare for food and we've never done this before, so we have no clue if it's going to be 20 or 200, and that's a big difference in the quantity of bacon that we buy. So um, 
let us know. Yeah, you can never have too much bacon. That's true. Um, all right, I have no time. Real quick, lots. Uh, number three, the church makes a major decision. I'm going to be brief here. I don't want to skip it, though. This is not the most significant thing happening in chapter 1. I know it's confusing and interesting and fun to talk about that they chose the 12th disciple by casting lots. But the most significant thing is the witnessing part. That is, verse 8 is, is the uh, you know, mountaintop of chapter 1 of our study. But there, I do want to just acknowledge it. There's a lot of debate about whether this was foolish or faithful. Was it smart for them to cast lots, or was this sinful for them to cast lots? Was this a good thing or a bad thing? Read a few commentaries on this. Even the commentators disagree a little bit on this. So I just, uh, I just want to acknowledge that we don't really know. You know, this is a little bit confusing. This doesn't feel like the way we make decisions today. So it feels, uh, feels a little bit pagan. It feels a little bit wrong. Like giving a major, a major decision like this. Who's going to be the twelfth apostle over to chance? Um, it, it feels weird to us. I acknowledge that, but uh, I want to give you my own opinion. I hold it with a lot of humility. Uh, I'll acknowledge that. I very well might be wrong. Uh, we can, as brothers, disagree on this point, but I actually do think that this is faithful. This is not foolish. Um, and I think that really because of three reasons. First, they use their minds, their God-given minds, to to carry the decision as far as they were able. They did not just throw a lot for, for who to pick. They tried to narrow it down as much as possible. They, they narrowed it down to two, but here were two qualified men, and they didn't know what to do next. And in that, they prayed to God next, asking for wisdom and discernment for what they couldn't see. Like they took their own minds as far as they could, and then they asked God, please show us which one of these it's supposed to be. You alone, Lord, can see their hearts. And heart matters so much in ministry. If, if, if he has a good head and he has good hands, that's great. But what about his heart? It won't work if it's not there. And so they acknowledge that. They pray to God for that. And then, this is why I think it's faithful, they put the decision in the Lord's hands. Them casting lots is not about them trying to uh, you know, put this decision in the hands of the gods. They're putting it in the hands of God. God himself, Proverbs 16.33, teaches us the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision from it is from the Lord. They wanted God to choose, and they put the decision in the Lord's hands as they cast this lot. It wasn't ambiguous. They weren't just uh, you know, throwing down a dice to make this decision. They were being thoughtful, prayerful, and looking to God. So the question for you, should you do this today? My answer for you is, it's complicated, you know? <laughs> There's a way to lean on lots and to lean on dice that is totally being passive and not engaging your role as a man to think carefully about decisions and to make wise decisions. And don't use them that way. But where, like these disciples, you're leaning upon God, you're doing the very best you can, you're trusting in Him for strength, I don't think it's actually wrong. I think that what they model here, it's not prescriptive. This is not how we must make decisions. It's not giving us a command to obey. But it is describing something they did, and I don't see sin in it. I see faithfulness. So it can be a model for your life, um, provided you use it in the same ways. Clear, clear enough? <laughs> clear as much? If you have questions, stick around. It's 7 o'clock. Uh, let me pray for us. Father, make us a men who pray, who study your scriptures, and who follow you faithfully. Uh, lead us in that. It's in your name that we pray all these things. Amen.